Our text this morning is Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 20. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they drew him out of the vineyard and killed they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use your word. We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would reach us. You would convict us of our sin. You would comfort us with the healing balm of the gospel. Most of all, Lord, we ask that you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might see him as all in all. That we might honor him, worship him, and adore him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of watching a building being built? Now, I don't mean one of these small shacks or sheds. I mean something like a skyscraper. As they build these large buildings in the center of a city. You know, when I was younger, I had the experience of seeing this. And I was very confused. And maybe for some of you, especially you young people, you might be confused if you watched it being built. Because 
I thought when they built a big building, they would start building it up so that I could see it and see how big it was. But actually, when they start building a very big building, the very first thing they do is they dig down. They make a huge hole and they dig deep so that they can lay a foundation so that the building will be secure. This is one of the first things that I found odd as we moved from up north down south. We moved to Jackson, Mississippi, and I could not believe that nowhere at all could I find a basement. Now, at the time, I didn't know how people in the south did things. You know, where do you store all your boxes and tools? Where do you send the kids when you need to be free from them for an hour or two? But you see, it's the nature of the land. It's different than it is in other places in the country. And, and instead of digging down and building a basement, most homes, virtually all homes, have a, a concrete slab built with a building on top of them. I think that's why sometimes natural disasters come in our midst with such fury. There was just a story on the news this past week about the Memorial Day flooding, how a woman was interviewed and her home and her bed and breakfast behind it were completely swept off the foundation by the raging river. The foundation wasn't strong enough to keep the building. But you know, it's not just physical buildings that need a strong foundation. It's our lives too, isn't it? It's actually all of our world. Without a strong foundation, we are unable to stand against the storms of life. There are so many things that come into our lives and into our circumstances. Sorrow, financial difficulty, relationship hurt. How can we possibly stand? This morning we see from the very last parable that Jesus told that the only way that we can stand is to know that the foundation of our lives and the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. Not just to the church, although that's true. Not just in your life, although that's true but to the entirety of the universe. We'll see this morning that in this parable, Jesus describes to us what happens when we deny the centrality of Jesus in our lives. He tells us a parable in which first we see the entrusted vineyard. A vineyard that a landowner has and he entrusts to some tenants. Secondly, after some challenges, we are introduced to the landowner's beloved son. And then thirdly, we will see what happens when we see rejection and judgment. A vineyard, a son, and judgment. Let's begin first by looking at this vineyard. Verse 9 begins this parable of Jesus. He talks about a man who's planting a vineyard. Now, this is the very last parable that Jesus tells. It is right before the events of his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And you might ask yourself, well, what is a parable? This is not the first one we've seen. You may even recall that I have shared with you at times in past that a parable is basically a story that carries a main point. And you may even remember that I have advised you against trying to dissect every parable into little tiny pieces and decide what every little bit of the parable represents. Well, I have to confess to you that this morning, I'm going to break Fred's rules of parables. Because you see, this parable, this last parable, is the most allegorical parable of all. It's actually pretty clear to see who Jesus means and what he is describing. (coughs) And that should not surprise us. Because Jesus is speaking in very clear terms. The crisis is at hand. The time is short. He is about to go to the cross. He must speak plainly and boldly. So what is this story then? It's a story of a man who owns a plot of land. And he wants to set up a vineyard. We know from Matthew and Mark, who also tell us this parable, that there's a good deal of work going on. That the man cleared the ground. That he made a fence. That he dug a pit to put a wine press in. That he built a tower. There is a great deal of work that is involved with setting up a vineyard. And the man lets this vineyard, he leases it to some tenants. Now, this is ordinary in this day and age. What you would do if you owned land and wanted to establish a winery, you would get others to come and live on the land and tend to the vineyard. You cannot have a one-person winery. It's just not efficient. And so what he would do is he would lease this land to some tenants. They would get to live there in exchange for their work, and they would also get part of the proceeds as the grapes grew, as the wine was made, as it was sold in the market, they would get a percentage of that. Actually, a fairly healthy percentage of that. But the problem is that in this story, the tenants don't want to give the landowner his due. They don't want to acknowledge it's his land. They don't want to acknowledge it's his fruit. So they send his servants off with violence. And then the landowner sends his son, his beloved son. Thinking that this will get their attention, that this will remind them of truth and justice. But instead, all they see is another opportunity for self-gratification. And they kill him. So... It is a bit obvious who Jesus is talking about here. If you look down at verse 19, you'll see that the the Jewish leaders knew exactly what he was talking about here. They were so angry, they were ready to kill him right then and there. And so in here we have the story of the landowner, who is God the Father. We have a vineyard, which represents Israel, or the outward people of God. We might even say the church. And then we have the tenants, who are the leaders of God's people. The ones who are to take care of the vineyard. 
The servants are God's prophets. And the Son, of course, is Jesus. So Jesus is telling us a very clear story with a point. It's interesting that he chooses the story of a vineyard. This would immediately get the attention of everyone around him. Because you see, it's, it's a biblical thing to refer to Israel as a vineyard or as a vine. Israel is used to being compared to a vine. This was actually a, something that they were proud of. They were a vine planted by God out of Egypt. That, G, that, that God had planted them that they would bear fruit. It's actually so intertwined in the culture of Israel that in the temple itself there was a golden vine fashioned that was 200 feet tall. And throughout that vine there were fruit as it were. Precious gems. And when people wanted to make a a special donation or a show to the temple and its precincts, what they would do is they would take precious jewels and put them into the, the vine area as if they were fruit. And this was a source of great joy to Israel. It was something that they would look at and see how good it was to be in the temple. How good it was to be planted by God. It was a biblical thing. Psalm 80 verse 8 says of God that he brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Hosea describes Israel as a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Jeremiah continues the way of speaking of Israel as a vine, but with a bit of an edge now. He says in chapter 2, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Well, it would be easy for the Israelites to think about culture and their own commitment in terms of a vine. The landlord would entrust it to the tenants. And the tenants were supposed to take care of the vine so that it would bear fruit. The tenants have a job to do. Now, when I was younger, I had the bright idea to have a garden in my backyard. Perhaps some of you have done this at one time or another. And and as you think about doing this, you think, well... I'll have to dig a few holes and throw some seed and the rain will come down and water the garden and I'll be knee-deep in tomatoes before I know it, right? Well, if you've ever had a garden, you know that it doesn't work like that, right? You have to prepare the ground and you have to carefully plant the seeds and you have to water the soil and you have to feed the plants and the soil. You have to... Make sure they're nourished. You know, you also have to prune back the bad growths. You have to cut out the weeds. It's backbreaking work day after day after day in the summer. 
And then you actually have to protect the garden, don't you? Well, at least when I grew up, up north, if you didn't put tall, high barbed wire fences, the deer would eat everything that you put out. You had to protect that garden. You had to feed it. You had to prune it. That's the job of the tenants here. They are to feed, prune, and protect the vine. Now remember what we're talking about here. We're not just talking about agriculture. We're talking about this is the job of the leaders of God's people. To feed God's people. To protect God's people. To prune out the weeds. And they do this after a fashion, and a good bit of time goes by, because winemaking is not exactly a quick business either. You have to grow the fruit, and you'd have to harvest the fruit, and then you'd have to ferment the wine, and go through a series of steps before you could enjoy the fruit of your labor. All this time, the landowner is away. So what then begins to happen? the tenants start to think more and more that the landlord is not around and won't be around. He becomes more and more remote for them. Do you understand? He also seems a lot less powerful. This is just common sense, right? We can all be bold and courageous when standing up to someone or dealing with someone across 2,000 miles of internet cable, can't we? But to be in the same room, a little bit harder, isn't it? See, that's what they're experiencing. The landlord is not around. And so he seems less relevant. He seems less powerful. He seems less involved in their life. They could even be assuming that he will never come back. That his absence is permanent. And I think sometimes there's a next step that happens. To stay in our parable. Eventually the tenants begin to believe that the landlord never existed in the first place. That they own the land. That they can do what they want. And they don't need anyone telling them what to do. If we're honest with ourselves, isn't that a description of society today? Of a society that completely denies the fact that God exists. That he has ownership and sovereignty. That he is powerful. That he is not remote. That he is intimately involved in the lives of people. You see, this is not just about a defense of Christianity. People take this view with respect to the entirety of the universe. They act as if they know what's involved. They act as if they understand the way the world is. But something breaks in to their dreaming. Look here at verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. See, the problem with perception is that it doesn't change reality. When the time came, 
the landlord sent. And he expects wine. He expects fruit. After all, that was the tenant's job, wasn't it? But how do they respond? They won't submit. Even though the landlord has all of the rights, it's his land, he let it out to them. They've grown successful and comfortable, and then they begin to reject the landlord. The leaders want no part of the one who has given them their task. They're rejecting God and His Word. Now, this tells us something about ourselves, doesn't it? Do we understand the reality of the world? Do you live as if you are completely dependent upon God? Because if you don't, you don't understand the reality of the world. You see, this is what our society does. Our society seeks to make God absent, irrelevant. People who never read the Bible seem to know an awful lot about God, don't they? You talk to someone and they don't even know what the Bible is and then they begin to tell you what God is like. That God is inclusive and he doesn't care what you believe. Well, how do you know that? Well, because that just seems right to me. It seems like that's fair. Did you ask God what he thought? No, 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 no. Well, you know, the Bible says that you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you don't, you'll be lost. Oh, no, 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 no. I could never believe in a God that was like that. That's just not loving. God doesn't meet my standard. You see, we reject God and His rights and His word and somehow think that that's intelligent and right. And the problem is, is that that spirit of our age does not stay outside the church. You see... Sometimes I think we believe that heresy comes into the church from bookish professors who are somewhere off in an office studying the Bible for hours upon hours and coming up with wrong conclusions. It's far more often that what happens is our culture, our world, even our own hearts have desires then we go to the Bible to find justification for them, don't we? We ought not to believe that the recent change in a theological position about homosexuality is because of an increased study of Romans 1 in the original Greek. Or a parsing of Hebrew verbs in the Pentateuch. It doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. What it has to do with is our desire to be pleasing to the Kardashians and to football players and to celebrities and to the media and we want to go into the Bible and find something else. You see, we have jettisoned God from His Word. We think we are in control, that we are the authority 
What Jesus is saying here to us is all that is is plain rebellion. The rebellion manifests itself in the rejecting of God's prophets. God is gracious and patient. He sends not one, not two, but three servants. And that is actually emblematic of how often he sent his prophets to call his people back to his word, back to the truth, back to reality. God sends Elijah, and the queen tries to kill him. He sends Elisha, and the king tries to kill him. He sends Isaiah, and he's murdered. He sends Jeremiah, and he's called a criminal. Over and over again, the prophets are sent to Israel. But they neither listen nor incline their hearts. We see examples over and over again how Jeremiah is ostracized, how Zechariah is murdered at the altar, how John the Baptist has his head cut off. They don't want to hear God's word and truth. And in the New Testament era, it doesn't get any better, does it? Stephen confronts the leaders and he just reminds them of all the things that they did in murdering the prophets. And what do they do? They kill him just for saying this. You know, only one of the 12 apostles escaped a violent martyr's death. And before you stand up and say, well, if I've got to be an apostle, then I want to be John. Living decades out in exile on a rock is not exactly a fun existence. You see, God keeps reaching out. He keeps engaging. He keeps sending his word. He keeps sending his prophets. He never changes his word, but he keeps appealing. Think of God's patience even now. Think of his patience in the modern missions movement. After so many nations have rejected Christianity. Think of how many modern martyrs there are in India, in Sudan, in Saudi Arabia, throughout the Muslim lands. But God keeps calling his people, doesn't he? He keeps sending new missionaries. Sometimes it seems like To no effect. But before we judge that too quickly, we have to understand that is exactly what it seemed like in 19th century China. No conversions. Starvation. Martyrdom. Death. And now we read that the largest church in the world is the underground church in China. God is patient. And he doesn't give up. Think about our modern culture. What in our modern culture would cause God to smile? Think about all of the ways that we reject God and His Word for our own desires. And this also happens in the church, doesn't it? Our culture, to just give one example, is completely beholden to the idea of self-gratification with respect to abortion. Now, it is not because of facts. Because test 
after study, after study, after study, after sonogram, after sonogram, after study, shows that a child in the womb is exactly that, a child. But you see, we don't want to be bothered by that. We don't want to be embarrassed or inconvenienced. And so we simply deny God's truth. And perhaps the most scary thing that should get us on our knees praying for the patience of God is that this makes its way into the church. Would it surprise you to know that a so-called church that at least claims to follow Jesus has abortions covered under its health care plan for ministers? Encouraging ministers to have abortions. You see, we are so far from God. We, we think there are no consequences to what we believe and what we do because we see God as being absent. But what Jesus is telling us here is that this is not weakness. This is patience. It's not weakness that has the landowner send his beloved son here. In verse 13. What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. You see, this is a risky step. We all are saddened when something happens to our employees or co-workers. We all would be concerned if our car was wrecked. But what about your child? That's a whole different plane, isn't it? You see... That shows us that the patience of God is rooted in the love of God. God so loves his people that he sent his beloved son to cry out to them again, to point them to repentance. This is not a normal response, is it? A normal response would be force. That's actually what would normally happen in this day and age. If the tenants didn't pay up, the landowner would send a couple of guys over with brass knuckles. And the tenants would find a way to find the money. Or they'd be short a couple limbs. But not so God. He shows his patience. He shows his love. He keeps persisting. Why is this? It's because even if we do not know, God knows our need. He knows we're hopelessly lost. He knows without Jesus we don't even understand that we are lost. He knows that without Jesus we cannot find our way home. He knows that without Jesus we have no hope at all. And so God acts for us in ways that we would never do for others. Charles Spurgeon puts it brilliantly. And speaking of the Lord, he says, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring justification. Jesus is love made manifest. This is what a lost tenant This is what a lost world needs. It needs Jesus. Now the other thing we have to understand is that there is a great intention involved here in the patience and love of God. It is not as if God did not know the cost. It is not as if God did not know what was involved. 
I'd like to teach you your theological term for the week. It's called absolute consequent necessity. And what it means is this. Is that God was under no necessity to save anyone. But once he had determined to save, it became absolutely necessary that Jesus would die. Because that was the only way salvation could be effectuated. With his eyes wide open, as it were, in his full plan and decree, God the Father sends the Son knowing exactly how he will be treated, knowing exactly what will happen so that his purposes would be accomplished. When we see this, doesn't this give us a glimpse of the love and patience of God? Can we honestly say we would have acted as the landowner would have? The problem is, though, just because God is patient, and just because God is loving, does not mean an end to the rejection. He sends His beloved Son, and what is the reaction of the tenants? We might think they would say, well, this is important. The sun is here. We better clean up our act. This would be the sort of thing that that kids do when they get a phone call and find out that their parents are coming home early for dinner and there's stuff all over the house. They scramble to make everything clean, right? That's happened once or twice to you and you know it. Even you older people when you were younger. No, but that's not how they react, is it? They see the son and they say, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And you see, what's involved with that is the tenants see an opportunity to finally be rid of the landlord. Because you see, according to the laws of the time, if the landlord was dead or absent, which I think is what they're assuming here, the land would pass to the heir. Guess what happens when the heir dies if there's no other heir? The land goes to the tenants. You see, they're more concerned about their own desires, their own power, their own control, than they are about what is right, what is truth, and what is justice. They have no sense of this at all. What is driving them is their own desires. And again, we see this everywhere in the world today, don't we? Do we have rational conversations about anything moral anymore? You can't find anyone to have a conversation with, even to oppose a moral view. They'll just simply use platitudes and deny there's any reality, deny there's any absolutes. And anything that reminds them of that, they want to be rid of. You see, that is why the Bible is under attack. That is why Christians are under attack. It's because the age-old story of sin is people want to be free from God and His truth. And that's not going to stop. You see, they took the son and they threw him out of the land and they killed him. And a week later they would do that for real. They would take Jesus And they would take him outside the city. And they would kill him. Hoping that that was the end of this forever. 
That they had stamped out a voice that made them uncomfortable. That they had stamped out a voice that spoke God's word. That convicted them of their sin. That showed them the way was wrong. They thought they'd finally quieted it forever. And this is what our society wants as well. So a question comes to you. Are you standing by and watching it happen? Or do you testify to the goodness and graciousness of God? You see, you don't have to know what the best legislation is. You don't have to know what the Supreme Court should find. All you need to know as you speak truth to others is that I know Jesus and let me tell you what he has done to me. How he has changed me. How he has brought me to an end of myself. How he has shown me what real truth is, what real love is. This is how we stand. Because you see, Jesus reminds us that there is also a certain judgment that comes. Look at verse 15. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come. And he will destroy. And he will give the vineyard to others. You see, God is not forever silent. God is patient, but not forever. It knows its end. God is loving, but there is a judgment for those who hate Him. Now notice their reaction to this. Is there any reaction to the servants being beaten? Is there any reaction to the injustice of not giving the landowner his due? Is there any injustice to the son being killed? No. But as soon as Jesus says... He will take away their power and authority. Then what do they say? God forbid. May Ganoito. May it not be. This is the famous strongest negative statement in all of the Bible. Paul will use it over and over again. Anything else they could tolerate, but they can't tolerate not being in control, not having what they want, not having their desires satisfied. But you see, Jesus reaffirms that this is sin. And he reaffirms that he is the center and the cornerstone of the universe. Look at verse 17. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And I love the way Luke says it. He looked directly at them. The verb there is very precise. This is like when someone looks at you and you think they're looking through you. It's a gaze that you can't get away from. You kids know this, right? It's when you go a little too far with mom. You see, Jesus wants it to be clear. There's no mistake here. There's no misunderstanding. He says the Bible already tells you what the answer is. And the Bible says that there is A cornerstone. And it's not a cornerstone that you pick. It's not a cornerstone that you want. It's the Father. Because you see, this morning, Satan wants you to be blind and comfortable. He wants you to ignore the consequences of your actions and your sin. Yes, even Christians. He wants you to ignore the consequences. He wants you to stay asleep at the switch. The reality is, is that Jesus is the cornerstone. 
that Jesus is what keeps everything from falling down. That's what the cornerstone did. It stopped the walls from collapsing. The truth is that as that cornerstone, Jesus either restores and renews or he crushes. The good news for you today is that God is still patient. That there is still time. There is time for you to trust him. There is time for you to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is time for you to speak to your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. There is time for you to stand for truth and grace. This is the last parable Jesus ever told. When someone says something at the end, we remember it, don't we? We look at last words. We hear our parents say, this is the last time I'm going to tell you this. Pay attention to Jesus. He's telling you who he is. And in relationship to that, who you are and who you need to be. Let's pray.